Well, amen. It is great to have you with us today. We had a great Easter celebration last weekend. We had six absolutely packed services. So thank you for volunteering. Thanks for inviting your friends and family. It was just a great opportunity to celebrate forgiveness and hope together. But that means today we're back in 2 Kings. And I've been foreshadowing this week for a while. It's my favorite passage in 2 Kings as we get to learn the story of rabid grandma. Rabid grandma. Her name in the Bible is Queen Athalia. To remind you where we've been, the kingdom's been divided in this point of the Bible. There's the southern kingdom, Judah, and there's the northern kingdom, Israel. Israel has pretty much all wicked kings, Jezebel, Ahab. The northern kingdom's been bad. The southern kingdom's been mostly bad, but there's been a few moments and flickering of trusting God. But remember, God has promised that through David's descendants in Judah, the Messiah will come, his final forgiver and final fixer. However, Queen Athelia, daughter of Jezebel, and her brother Ahaziah are in the north. Athalia comes up with a plan. She marries into the family of Judah. She marries a man named Jehoram. Jehoram is killed by Jehu from the north when he's cleaning out all the evil. But they have a son named Ahaziah. That's why the Bible's so confusing. Her son's name is the same as her brother's name. So there's an Ahaziah to the north and an Ahaziah to the south. Now, Queen Athelia, rabid grandma, rabid grandma finds out that her son, Ahaziah, is killed by Jehu and he's cleaning out all the evil of the southern kingdom. And now she has an idea, an incredibly wicked but brilliant idea. With her son killed, what if she killed off all of her male sons and all of her male grandchildren? If she could kill them all off, number one, she could reign as queen. Two, by eliminating all of the heirs... There would be no bloodline left for the Messiah, no bloodline left of David's descendants. She would effectively have infiltrated the bloodline of the Messiah and rendered it mute. God's plans would stop. God's predictions would be off. God's plans for saving the world would be done and evil will have reigned. The stakes could not be higher. This queen who's gone rabid wanting to kill off her kids and grandkids so that she can reign. And she will get away with it. Almost. God will hide one of his kings. There will be one grandchild named Joash. Also known as Jehoash or Joash. It's said both ways in the passage. This king will be saved by God to infiltrate and overcome evil's reign. Let me show you again on, on the screen, just keep track of who's who, different characters we have here. Queen Athelia from the north, no bloodline to the Messiah, marries into the southern kingdom of Judah through King Jehoram. They have a son named Ahaziah who's just been killed. And now all those grandchildren she is going to choose to kill off in hopes of getting power. 
And as we're reading the book, we're wondering, is there any king that can put evil in checkmate? Or has evil really won? Is evil really overcoming? Has everything God promised mute and void? Or is there still a God I can trust when evil is reigning? And I gotta tell you, if you're honest with yourself, there's nothing that makes us trust God less or struggle with our faith more than seeing evil reign in the world and in our lives. Last couple of years, I've been through just lots and lots of challenges, more than I had in previous decades. And I began to notice that when God didn't do seemingly little things that would require just like the twitch of his pinky that would have you know, saved, helped uh, during difficult times in my life, I, I began to get bitter at God. I began to distance myself from God. I still love God. I still believe in God. I'm still trusting him for heaven. But I've, relationally, I found myself because of evil reigning or, or good not prevailing, just kind of distancing myself from God. Just kind of, well, why pray about it? He's going to do whatever he wants to do anyway. Becoming a bit of a stoic, a realist. But just feeling a distance between God and me because of evil's reign in the world around us. And God has been wooing me back for the last six months to reconnect with him and re-understand worship and re-trust that even when I can't see his plan, his hidden king, even when it does look like evil is reigning, God is still on the throne and he still is working out his plan And today I want you to feel the same thing. I want you to find the hope that even if you're disappointed, even if things aren't going the way you hoped or wanted, God is working behind the scenes. He has a hidden king. He has a saving king. And he has a future king working in the midst of the reign of evil. So let's start with the hidden king. See, there's a priest by the name of uh, Jehoiada. Jehoiada the priest He's actually the one that takes Joash and hides him out in the temple after his aunt, Jehoash's aunt, hides him away in a house for many years. And what we're going to find is that God has a hidden king, and this hidden king is born into a reign of evil. Chapter 11 begins this way. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead... (laughs) she arose and decided to destroy all the royal heirs. But Hosheba, the daughter of King Joram, the sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, stole him away from among the king's sons who were killed, and hid him from being murdered. In fact, they hid him and his nurse in the bedroom. So now Aunt Jehoiada and the priest Jehoiada, are going to protect and hide this king from the evil Athelia. So how did they do that? Well, if you look at Israel during those times on a map, the city was much smaller than it is today. But the temple, you'll see, is up here on the right-hand side of the screen. The royal palace was there kind of in the middle, upper left. But the old palace of David isn't the same place as where Solomon put the temple or, or put the palace. And so it's thought that maybe they hid him out in the old palace of David. In fact, if you go into those old palaces and look at it, there was a four-room Israeli uh, setup that was often happened in those homes. So this is what it would look like coming into one of those four-room homes. So this is where you would live. This is how you would uh, 
exists. This is how you have your livestock in there. But if you look at the back room, you see it's kind of dark back there. If you go in there and turn left, there's a hidden room that you can't see when you're just walking past. So probably, Ant hid him there for many years, trying to keep him quiet, until eventually Jehoiada moved him into the temple itself, hiding out the king during a reign of evil. It goes on to say, how long did they hide him? How long was he in hiding? They hid him in the, with his nurse in the bedroom from Athaliah, so he was not killed. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord, so they, they moved over to the temple, for six long years. And feel that next verse. While Athaliah reigned over the land. Rabid grandma has been reigning now, not for a day, not for a month, but for six long years. Do you have something in your life that's been going on for six long years? Something God should be doing, ought to be doing, a legitimate, genuine prayer you've prayed, and it just feels like God's plan is not in operation, that God has somehow left the world in the building. That's how everyone was feeling. I guess evil has won and nothing can checkmate the reign of evil. So back to what Queen Athelia has done. So Queen Athelia, remember she is the daughter of Jezebel, so she comes by this evil honestly. She's now seen the death of King Hosiah. She's now killed off all of her grandkids. She is now the queen of the land, but she doesn't know that she missed one. Joash. You know, all through our mythology and our stories in life is this idea that there's a hidden king that we're longing for to come and fix the reign of evil. You think of King Arthur, the once and future king. Can some other king come with a whole new way of reigning with a round table to bring people together? It's Robin Hood. We are we're dying under the reign of, 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 of Prince John. We're longing for someone. Would good King Richard come back and fix what's broken here? And the robbery of our, of our country robbing each one of us. The longing for King Richard. It's true in the Greek mythology. If you don't know the story of Zeus, Zeus's dad was a titan. His name, uh, name was Kronos. And Kronos is so, is so insecure that his kids are going to overthrow him, which was Poseidon and Hades and Demeter and Zeus, that he decides, as every good insecure dad would, to eat his children. He scoops them up and eats them. Ah, but in the myth, somebody swapped out Zeus for a giant rock and dad's not real attentive to his kids so he didn't realize he scooped up his kids and a giant rock and swallowed them. Meanwhile, Zeus was hidden in a cave for some time until eventually as he grew, he came back and led a rebellion, basically put Serpa Epitach down his dad's throat and got his brothers and sisters out and there leads the Greek mythology of the gods. But even in there, you see this idea, evil's reigning, the the, the Kronos, There's a hidden king. Is someone going to come back and save us? There's all through all religions is this idea. Now, the reason I call her rabid grandma is because she's a grandma that goes crazy killing off her kids and grandkids. I came up with that term because my brother used to love these uh, ridiculous B-rated TV shows that would be on movies. And one of them was actually called Rabid Grannies. 
And it was like these zombie grandmas that kind of went crazy. It was like with Gilbert Godfrey on USA. Up all night, Gilbert Godfrey. And he loved this kind of stuff. And I'm like, what are you watching, Rabid Grannies? Who in the world's heard of that? I go down to Atlanta, and I met a, one of my best, became one of my best friends, Ed. And he was from New York. And so we were talking about crazy bad movies we'd all seen before. And I said, well, here's one you probably never heard before. Rabid Grannies. His jaw drops. He says, you're not going to believe this. I went to college up in, Chicago, up in New York. I had a, a guy that we used to hang out with. We got talking about stupid movies we've seen. He had seen Rabid Grannies. And when I told him I'd seen it, Ed said, he told me my grandma was in it. <laughs> His grandma was Rabid Granny. Pretty amazing. I, I told my brother the other day about that. He's like, why couldn't our grandma do something awesome like that? So, again, my brother loved that stuff. So Rabid Granny. Now, just when it looks like evil is reigning, we find out that God is the ultimate grandmaster. God is able to think infinite moves ahead. Infinite. Even though it's been six long years, God is a grandmaster who thinks infinite moves ahead. And we won't see the full extent of that until the Gospels open when Matthew is writing of the genealogy of Jesus. Look what he writes. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, and he's got to show that it's connected to King David, which connects to Judah, which connects to the messianic promises God gave. And he says, Jesus is related to David. Let me show you how. He was the son of Abraham, and it begot so-and-so, begot so-and-so, begot so-and-so. And David the king leads to Jehoshaphat, who begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. And we're like, oh, a bunch of boring Bible names, can we move on? But there is a huge missing section here. See, the word begot in the Greek doesn't mean son of. It means related to. So it's accurate. But it would be like me saying to you, A, B, C, D, H, I, J, K. You'd be like, hey, hey, what happened to D, E, F? By leaving something out, you would recognize. You'd say, hey, whoa, 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 what happened there? The writer has done exactly that. He has jumped from D to H. You see, if you look at the family line, they are related to each other. They did begot each other, but not son of. Between Joram and Uzziah is a whole bunch of kings he left out. Why? You see, it goes from Jehoshaphat to Joram, and then it goes to Ahaziah, we just saw killed. Then it goes to Queen Athalia. Then it goes to Jehoash. Then it goes to Amaziah. There's Ahaziah and Amaziah. Then it goes to Uriah. Or Uzziah, rather. Why does the writer leave out this reign? Because if you talk to a typical Jewish follower of Yahweh, they would say there was one time in history that evil seemed to reign. There seemed to be no way out. It seemed like God did not have a king and there was no way he was going to accomplish his purposes. And by drawing attention to it, by leaving it out, He's reminding the audiences he's writing to the same thing's happening today. Rome, the evil of Rome is all around us. We have been oppressed. We have been shoved back. Apparently Messiah is never coming. Apparently God does not have a plan. And what he is about to tell us is the same way that there was a king born into a reign of evil in this day. There was a king, a hidden king, born into evil in the days of Romans in the first century. In the same way, there was a king that is thought to be dead and will later be found alive. Oh, I've got a story for you about a king that's been hidden for a while. He'll be thought to be dead, and three days later, he will be alive. There is a king who has a natural 
uh, father, but it's not his real father. He'll be raised by a spiritual father, a priestly father, a father that represents God. See, Jesus, this king to come, is raised by a heavenly father, not his earthly father. All of the parallels here point to the idea that as the curse is brought in, as the curse of the northern kingdom tried to infiltrate the southern kingdom, God still had a plan and God was still working. And what God did then, he's about to do now through Jesus. God thinks infinite moves ahead. So how does this hidden king become a saving king? Well, the thing about a, a king is a king has to at some point be made king and has to be declared king. So what Jehoiada has done is Jehoiada, out in the temple, he has plans to make this seven-year-old king. He has plans to make Joash into and declare him king of the land. But Queen Athelia, who doesn't know he's even alive, thinks he's dead, is still reigning on high. In the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the hundreds, of the bodyguards and the escorts, and brought them into the house of the Lord to meet him. And he made a covenant. This king makes a covenant with the priest and with God, with them. Took an oath with them from the house of the Lord. He showed them, the king's son is not dead, he is alive. And he commanded them saying, this is what you shall do, the guards of the temple. One third of you will come on duty on the Sabbath. You will be keeping watch over the king's house. One third will be at the gate of Sir. One third at the gate behind the escorts. You shall keep the watch of the house lest it be broken. Let's make sure she doesn't find out what we do until it's done. The two contingencies of you will go off duty for the Sabbath. will keep watch over the house of the Lord for the king. But you shall surround the king on all sides. Let's protect him. Every man with his weapons in his hand. Whoever comes within range, let him be put to death. Don't let anyone get to God's king. Protect the king. And you are to be with the king as he goes in and as he comes in. This is a good lesson for just living the Christian life. Stay near the king. Be near him. He moves, you move. He stops, you stop. So the captains of the hundreds did according to all Jehoiada the priest commanded. Each of them took his men who were on duty on the Sabbath with those who were going off duty on the Sabbath. And they came to Jehoiada... And the priests gave the captains of the hundreds spears and shields. So just imagine, they're marching their way toward temple. Here's this little seven-year-old boy surrounded by the guards, protecting him from Queen Athelia. God's plan, God's king is about to be declared king over all the land. Now this king, which belonged to King David, that were in the temple of the Lord, then the escort stood, every man with his weapons in hand, all around the king, from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple by the altar of the house. And a big procession protect him as he moved toward the king. And here we are, all these shields. These are actual shields from that time period, protected on each side to protect the king as he makes his way to temple. And they finally bring the king, the little boy, up to temple. Jehoiada comes up to declare him king, surrounded by all these shields and all these protectors. At that moment, they make their way into Solomon's temple. And here in Solomon's temple, something amazing happens. Joash, the little boy who's been hidden for six years, he's now seven years old, is going to be made and declared king. And this incredible ceremony that's so loud and so amazing that even Queen Athelia will hear about it miles away. 
So he brought out the king's son. They put a crown on him. They gave him the testimony. And they made him king. And they anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, long live the king. Remember I told you, God has a saving king for each one of us. Thought to be dead, but now alive. But that king needs to be made king and declared king in your heart and in mine. After six years of thinking that there was no plan, that all God's messianic claims, all God's promises were gone, all of a sudden God is working. He's been working before, but now they can see it. What does it look like for you to live for the king, declare God king, and to make God king? To live for a kingdom that's maybe not what you want to do or prefer to do. It's what the king has commanded you to do. There was a naval officer by the name of uh, Mitsua Fechuda. He was the naval officer from the Empire of Japan that led the attack on Pearl Harbor. In fact, he's known famously for saying, Tora, 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 which means we have taken them completely by surprise. He personally sketched out the damage that the Japanese Empire did at Pearl Harbor. Years later, after World War II, he wasn't personally, but many other people in the Japanese Army and Navy were put under war crime for the way they tortured American POWs and others. And he thought this was ridiculous. He said, everyone did equal amounts of animosity. It's the war. You should just let it go. Well, they were prosecuted, the Japanese were, for their horrific treatment of their POWs. So he decided to set the record straight to show just how evil Americans were as well. So he began to interview every Japanese POW coming back. To his shock, he found out that they were treated far differently than how they had treated the Americans. In fact, one of his friends, he didn't realize, had been captured. He talked to a personal friend, and this friend said that he was in a POW camp. And one of the people that fed him and took care of him, he used the word ministered to him when he was a POW as a Japanese in American camp was a woman named Peggy. And to his shock, Peggy was a daughter of missionaries who had been slaughtered by the Japanese. And yet, she loved and cared and ministered to the very people who had killed her parents. This is shocking to Mitsitsu. His, his code of conduct is that when someone kills your parents in particular, you declare them enemies for life. He's never seen anything like this. And they said that the reason she did this is because she followed the teachings of someone named Jesus. He wasn't interested in Jesus, but he was just amazed at this upside-down way of thinking. He began to investigate this, 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 this kingdom, this different empire that she was following. A few years later, as he was trying to figure out more about this, he actually learned that uh, there was a guy named Jacob. He had a tract that was being passed out in Japan, and it said, I was a prisoner of war, taken prisoner by Japan. He talked about being tortured by the Japanese, and in the midst of that, he got put in solitary confinement, but he was given a Bible. And during those three weeks in solitary confinement, he read the Bible and he began to have compassion toward his Japanese enemies who were holding him captive and torturing him. He saw them as people controlled by evil that God loved and God wanted to save. And he passed out this tract throughout Japan talking about how much he had come to love and want to teach the Japanese people a different way. Now Mitsua is shell-shocked. He decides he's going to pick up the Bible. 
He begins to read through the Bible himself, and he stumbles in to Luke chapter 20, 21, 22, and Jesus' crucifixion. And he hears Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. At that moment, he realized there was a different kingdom and a different king and a different empire. And the man who ran the attacks on Pearl Harbor became a follower of Jesus. He began to travel the world to talk about how a samurai soldier, a Navy officer, could have his entire world turned upside down by a Jewish carpenter. Because some woman taking care of some POWs made Jesus king by loving her enemies. How about you? What does it look like to declare Jesus king in your life? Now Joash is a king. And he's now the returning king. And as the returning king, Athaliah is just about to find out what they have done. And this again points to Jesus. Because God has a future king who will return. He's been gone away for a while, but he's returning. And he's going to vanquish evil for you and for me. Now when Athaliah heard the noise of the escorts and the people. She came to the people in the temple of the Lord. When she looked, there was the king. Standing by a pillar, according to custom and the leaders. And the trumpeters were by the king. He comes with trumpets. Again, you just see all the foreshadowing of Jesus in his his second coming. All the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. So Athalia tore her clothes and cried out, Treason! Treason! And Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of the hundreds and the officers of the army and said to them, take her outside under guard and slay her with the sword and whoever follows her. For the priest had said, don't let her be killed in the house of the Lord. So they seized her and they went by the way of the horse's entrance into the king's house and there she was killed. Ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. Then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord, the king, and the people. A new covenant is in place. That they should be the Lord's people. And also between the king and the people. And all the people of the land went to the temple of Baal. And they tore down the old altars. They tore down the old kings. They tore down the old gods. They thoroughly broke the pieces, the altar into pieces that day. And again, here's what they had done. They had taken the template For God's temple, it's got a holy of holies, it's got a holy place, it's got an altar. They took God's template for his worship center and they made one that had Baal in the center of it. Foreign gods in the center of it. It's still worship, it's still a king, it's still a god, but it's false worship. They said now that God reigns again, Yahweh reigns again, and they eliminated and tore down all these old counterfeit temples. And the priest appointed over the house of the Lord, and he took the captains of the hundreds, the bodyguards, the escorts, and all the people of the land. And they brought the king down from the house of the Lord and went by the the way of the gate to the escorts to the king's house. Then he sat on the throne of the kings. Again, if you're a student of the New Testament, you know that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he now doesn't stand, but he sits at the right hand of God, saying that he now reigns. And there will come a time that though we live in a time where Athelia reigns in this world, that Jesus will return and he will vanquish evil and he will do away with Queen Athelia and evil will be thrown into the pit 
and ultimately destroyed, and he will sit on the throne, and his kingdom will reign on earth for a thousand years into eternity. So if you've been struggling with evil's reign in your life, individually or corporately, if you've wondered, like, I guess it's not worth praying because God's going to do whatever he wants. God is currently working behind the scenes. He currently does have a plan. But you've got to keep trusting that he's the grandmaster. The passage concludes by reminding us that in order for one king to reign, another king needs to be slain. In order for God to reign in your life, you're going to have to slay some other king, some other thing you've been trusting in. What have you been trusting in? God does not want to be your second king. He wants to be your first king. Who is the king in your life that needs to be slain? Who is the queen in your life? Is it, is it people's approval? Is it the security of money? Is it your status? What is the thing that drives you and motivates you? What is that thing you find comfort from and peace from that needs to be dethroned, maybe even slain, so that God can reign? See, all the people of the land rejoiced. Ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. And the city was quiet. Oh, it hasn't been quiet in a long time with evil. For they had slain Athaliah with the sword in the king's house. And Jehoash, I told you, they say his name both ways. Joash at the beginning and Jehoash was seven years old when he became king. Again, foreshadowing that God's king is going to come in a way you don't imagine. It's going to be a little child. Huh. Make you think of anything? What's the king that God's asking you to slay so that he can reign in your life? Sometimes we have to be humbled to begin to appreciate the genius and wisdom of God. Several years ago, about three or four years ago, my son-in-law had just moved, uh, had moved here after college, and they got married, and so we got a chance to walk along the riverfront. Because I, I love skiing on the riverfront, but I, I never really walked on the riverfront in Cincinnati. And there's a giant chess set there. These giant pieces, actually. Well, they're not these giant pieces. They're still down there. Pieces like this are down there. And so my son-in-law and I decided we were going to play some chess. He played a few times. I played a lot back in junior high. I was on the chess team. Yes, this is a place I feel like I can be vulnerable and tell you I was on chess team. So I played a little bit, but not a lot, but more than he had. So we start playing, and if you're not familiar with chess, there's something called the four checkmate move. And so if you're playing with somebody who doesn't see it coming, you can in four moves get somebody in checkmate. And so I moved my pawn out, he did something. I moved my bishop out, he did something. I moved my queen out, and he did something. But he didn't see it coming. And with the fourth move... And he's just kind of preparing for the game. It's going to be a long game. It's chess. I go, take his pawn, king, queen, right in front of the king, checkmate. Jaw drops. My father-in-law knows something. Not really, but he's just, <laughs> he's shell-shocked that I beat him in four moves. Well, he went to town. He's pretty competitive. He went to town, and for the next two months, he began to study up on chess. We have played many times since then, and I have not won yet. <laughs> I'm a creative, uh, offensive person, but I'm terrible at defense. So it's easy to get around because I'm still thinking about how I'm going to attack you. 
It was the humility of that moment. Let him see that maybe I don't know everything that I need to know. And for me, it was the humility of, oh, my goodness, I can beat my son-in-law a second time. Oh, he's gotten better. Oh, wow, third time, he's gotten better, right? For many of us, we have to be humbled before we realize we need to trust God to be our king. So I want you to walk away today with what I'm going to call the chess mate, the checkmate mindset. To know that check, God will eventually put evil in checkmate. The question we began with today is, is there a king who can put evil in checkmate? There is. We saw it in the first century. It will come again at his second return. But in the meantime, we need to trust God with the checkmate mindset. What does that mean? What does it mean to have the mindset that God will eventually put evil in checkmate? And how do I live in the meantime in a broken world living under Queen Athelia? Well, number one, you need to remember God's your, your grandmaster. He's 26 moves ahead. And if, and if you haven't played chess, I can think about three moves ahead, maybe four. I can't think 26. And we can't even imagine what God is doing. Why would, you, why would I have to sacrifice my bishop? Why do I have to give up my pawn? Oh, that was my rook. I needed my rook. The things that we are sacrificing, it seems so fundamental to us. And yet God is putting together a master plan that he can see 26 infinite moves ahead. Number two, remember to protect your king. When God has become your king in your life, there's lots of other queens, lots of other bishops, lots of other things jockeying for position. Remember to protect your king. Protect your heart from making God king. Remind yourself that he is the king that reigns. His kingdom, his kingdom come. His way of doing things I want to obey and I want to trust. Protect your king. But also know that in a broken world, you got to remember, sometimes you are going to lose some pieces. Things are not going to be the way you hoped, the way you wished, or the way you wanted. It's not because God isn't good, and it's not because God doesn't have a plan. It's just because his plan is far beyond your and my ability to see it. The last couple of years, as God's been wooing my heart back to not just kind of respecting him, but to engaging back with him. One of the things he has given me in trusting him to be my grandmaster to keep this checkmate mindset in my head is God has shared with me that everything that comes in your life, Chad, the hard stuff, the good stuff, the challenging stuff, I want you to know that every piece of it has passed through my hands. So you don't have to like it. You don't have to understand it. But I do want you to know that the same hands that died for you are the hands that have allowed these circumstances into your life because I'm doing something in you and with you and through you. And that idea that God is going to eventually checkmate evil and that everything in my life has passed through his hands has brought me incredible peace and trust in the Grand Master that I don't always understand, but I know I can trust. Maybe for you, part of putting that battle or that warfare together in your life is figuring out how do you implement this, not just way back then or in your life. How do you do it right now, day to day? It's interesting if you're reading the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians says that one of the biggest challenges in our life is actually our relationships, how we relate to our kids and grandkids or our spouses. And in Ephesians it says the biggest battle often is learning how to love your husband the way Christ loved the church, how to love your wife the way Christ loved the church, how to take this love, this reign, this kingdom of God and just really put it into the everyday relationships. 
don't know if you ever thought about this, but he goes from Ephesians 5, talking about marriage and family, and the very next chapter is Ephesians 6, about spiritual warfare. If you want to know how to be a good spouse, be a good dad, be a good son, you're going to have to understand Ephesians 6. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and forces of the evil age. So you've got to put on the whole armor of God, your shield of faith, your helmet of righteousness, have your feet shod with the gospel of peace, so that you can be the husband you want to be, the wife you want to be, the son you want to be, the daughter you want to be, the person you want to be. If you want to reign out God's kingdom in your relationships, you've got to take warfare seriously. So next week we're taking one more pause on 2 Kings because Shanti Feldhahn is going to be with us. We're going to interview her at all services. She's a Harvard-trained expert on relationships. She's going to talk about how God's kingdom gets put into our life by showing how women think differently statistically than men more often than not. What are the, the things we can learn about how women think, things we can learn about how men think, and how we can learn to put God's kingdom in place. And then she and her husband are both going to be here. They're going to do a marriage workshop next Sunday night for two hours. So if you've got a good marriage, this will help you have a great marriage. If you have a hurting marriage, this will help bring healing to that marriage. How do we learn how to make God king, declare God king, and allow that to be part of our lives together? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredibly weird but powerful story of how you worked and conquered Queen Athelia and brought about your reign and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here today.